0: Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is the first volume of a two-volume history. And it's, by the way, it's written to the same guy, Theophilus, who I have no idea who Theophilus is. I don't know if anybody does. But, um, and so this is Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is volume one of a two-volume history. And notice what he says in Acts. I wrote to you before of what Jesus began to do. So what's the book of Acts about? What Jesus continued to do, okay? What Jesus began to do in Luke, the gospel, and what Jesus continued to do in the book of Acts. You know, once you get that in your head, you almost start, and listen, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when someone gets in the pulpit, the order of the books start jumping around. They're not in the places they should be. That's why when someone's preaching, it takes them a while to get to those, he's turned to so-and-so, and then you all get there before he does, it's because the books of the Bible, they just jump around, you know. But in my mind, I almost always put Luke and Acts right next to each other because of that, right? I, I almost think of Luke coming right after Acts. I've got to remember there's a book in between, all right? So this is the first volume. This was the first volume of a two-volume history of the works of Jesus, okay? Um. Luke wrote this gospel. Who is Luke? Turn over to Colossians for a moment. Let's see, that's after Philippians, right? Colossians chapter four. Let's look at verse 11. Well, 10. Aristarchus, this is Paul. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Okay, I don't know why I have eleven there, but let's keep going. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. All right, so here's here's what he's saying here. Two things: Luke is a Gentile because the other guys are mentioned as part of the circumcision. Luke is a Gentile and he's a physician. He's a physis- physician, okay. So we know this about Luke. So um, he's a physician and he's a Gentile. What's interesting about Luke um, is that if you're ever wondering about the people with specific medical conditions, like the woman who had the bleeding issue, and she'd wasted all her money with other with physicians, right? If you ever think, where is, when those medical type things come to mind, yes, where is that? It's probably in Luke, because that's the stuff he includes, okay? Uh, He's a physician, all right? And he was a constant companion of the Apostle Paul. Now, I don't know, I think you have, do you have this in your notes? He's a constant, and he got a bunch of Acts references. Are those in your notes? I can't remember what's in my notes and what's in your notes, it's B3. I got a check mark there, which makes me think it's in your notes. Maybe not. Here's the point I'm trying to make. When you look at portions of Acts, so when you read the book of Acts, all right, and, and, and here are the portions I'm, I'm thinking of. 16, chapter 16, 10 through 17. Chapter 20, 5 through 15. Chapter 21, 1 through 8, chapter 27, verse 1 through 28, verse 16. These are called the we sections of a Apo- of Acts. The we sections. Why do they call the we sections? Because in those sections, Luke writes, We went here, we did that, which meant he was with Paul when those things happened. Okay? So um A lot of scholars will, as they look at Acts, can pull pull this out. I mean, I didn't, you know, all of us could do this, but you got to really pay really, really close attention to the text. But those are the we sections. And in the we sections, you know Luke is with Paul. And it seems that Luke is with Paul a lot. And he was with Paul at the end of the Apostles' life, 2 Timothy 4.11. He says, Luke is with me. Okay? So Luke was with Paul to the end, all right? So that's Luke, um, really interesting character, really interesting character. Um, now, when was Luke written? And again, maybe you're not interested in all this. This is the sort of thing that gets biblical scholars excited. Uh, we're not sure, of course, um, The abrupt ending of the book of Acts suggests that he did not long survive his associate and friend Paul. It was probably written before the fall of Jerusalem because it's not mentioned. And that's, like I said last week, the fall of Jerusalem would be like someone nuke in New York City. It would be a really red letter date that everyone would refer to. Um, It's possible that when Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea that Luke did his research on the gospel. So Caesarea is up north a little bit from um, the um, Palestine, the Jewish area that we would call Israel today. Caesarea was a little bit north, and Paul was in prison up there for a couple of years, remember, waiting, and uh, he appealed to Caesar. Maybe during that time he went he went and, and did his um, investigation. So it's probable that he wrote his gospel between A.D. 60 and 67. Now, so, so here's what we need to remember, that the Gospels were each written with a particular purpose in mind beyond just giving us a biography of Jesus. Each, each one had a purpose in presenting uh, the life of Jesus. And so in our study, we're going we're gonna to go through Mark as kind of a template as to how to approach the Gospels. Okay. I've got 10 minutes yet, right? 20? Okay, 20. Let's go on to lecture two. Okay, does everybody have that? Did you hand that out already? Oh, okay. Okay, I want to, I want to, wait, while Caleb's doing that, anybody have any questions? By the way, you can interrupt me anytime with a question, okay? Anybody got any questions so far? Okay, yeah, Pastor Tim, through the boring stuff now. Let's get to some good stuff. <laughs> um, okay. Now let me make a suggestion to you, okay? Before every Sunday, look at these notes. Look at the lecture notes you're getting and see the text we're going to cover and start reading those ahead of time because we're not going to have time to read through the whole book of Mark as we do this. Uh, so you read ahead, okay? You read ahead. And, and I'm going to wrestle with how much to read and how much not to read and so forth. And, um, so. so we want to study the Gospel of Mark as a means of understanding the rest. And remember, we talked about the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, And that's because it's really hard to study all of them in one class. And when you do that, you miss the points that each one has to make. Um, Remember, each one had a purpose in mind, and that determined what he would include in the gospel, what he'd leave out, what Jesus says here, maybe left out in one, what Jesus says there was included in another. Um, For example, Matthew uses the Sermon on the Mount, but Mark doesn't. Mark doesn't even refer to it. It's not even in this gospel anywhere. Okay? Luke has it in his gospel, but in a different place and a different time. So it's, so it's like Jesus preached it here, and then, and then he might have, as an itinerant teacher, preached it there and revised it some, and that's the one that Luke has. Uh, they both include it, but Mark does not. And, and, and so have you guys ever seen the harmony of the gospels? Have you ever seen those? Those are a book that that what they do is they take all the gospel passages and they they arrange them so that it looks you can see the whole thing where all of the gospels are harmonized, um, and they they put all the verses together that they think belong together, and I mean John Calvin does that. He you can't get Calvin's commentary and say what's his commentary on Mark? What's it? On? Because he smashes them all together. Listen, I, I'm a real Calvin fan, but I think he made a big mistake when he did that. Um, because when you try to harmonize the Gospels, when you try to mash them all together so you all have one big thing, the problem with that is you miss the purpose of each writer. And you kind of take those things and, and put them all together. Um, and, and I don't like that, because then you lose the perspective of a particular writer. And sometimes, you know, sometimes by adding, we make something weaker, right? Sometimes by adding, if you put too much water in the soup, it's not, it doesn't taste as good. And so, um, um, so if you keep adding details from other Gospels, you're going to miss the point of a particular Gospel. And so one way of approaching the study of the Gospels is to mash them all together. The problem with that is then you lose the particular perspective of each Gospel writer, okay? And so what I want to do is kind of introduce to you how to study this particular Gospel so you can turn to the other ones and say, okay, how do we study this Gospel? How do we figure out what's going on? How do we figure out what that person's saying? So we're just going to use Mark. All right, now, I want to introduce you to an idea that has guided me for a long time in my study and my preaching, and I think which is absolutely essential whenever we study the Bible, okay? It's the word telos, okay? It's the word telos. Now, what does telos mean? Telos means goal. And by the way, I was... I'm going to give credit where credit is due. The man who who really got me going down this road is Jay Adams in his book on uh, preaching with purpose. And that was life transforming for me because I think he he has the right idea here with the idea of telos. Okay? And and not just for Mark, I want you to remember this whenever you read the Bible, whenever you study the Bible. I think this is the bedrock foundational key to all of our study of the Bible, this idea of telos. Well, what do I mean? Telos means goal. And here's the question you always ask when you're studying a passage of Scripture. What is the Spirit's goal in this passage or book? Or what was his purpose in giving us this passage? What was his purpose? Okay? Is his purpose that you know something? Is it his purpose that you, um, uh, that you, uh, is his purpose to persuade you to believe something? Is the purpose to motivate you to do something? What is his purpose? Why is this here? Because if you don't understand the purpose of the passage, you can distort the meaning of the text. And you can make it mean what you want it to mean. Why is it here? Um, so, I'm always asking myself this question. I'm always asking myself this question. Why did the Holy Spirit give us this passage, this book, however big the, the, what you're looking at? Um, you can't say... I want, to, um, I want to give this message to some people, to my people, so I'll use this gospel passage. right? I want, to, I want to tell them to do something, so I'll use this gospel passage. For example, for example, I want to teach people that by God's grace they can overcome any trouble. And so I go to that passage about Jesus sleeping in the boat, and the, the disciples panicking, and Jesus says, Wah. he says, peace be still, and the storm suddenly ends, and the sea is as smooth as glass. And I say, that's the one I'm going to preach in order to tell people they can overcome life's problems. Jesus is in control. Well, that would be wrong, because did the Holy Spirit put that text there to teach us that particular thing? And the answer is, no. That's not why that's there. Okay? Um, Or, okay, um, the passage in Luke where it says, and so Jesus went to the synagogue as was his habit. Right? And so we say, aha, there's the passage I can use to get people to go to church. Jesus was in the habit of going to synagogue, so you need to be in the habit of going to church. That's not why that passage is there, okay? I'll, I'll, I'll break it in right now. The, the, the purpose of the passage with Jesus calming the storm is when the disciples stand back and they say, whoa, what, is, what kind of man is this? That's the purpose. Let's get you asked the question. Here's somebody who, okay, like God at the beginning can what? Speak everything into existence, Right? He's over nature, and he speaks all of nature into existence. Well, here is someone who has the control of nature just by speaking. So you see? You see what the writer's doing there? He's not trying to tell you at that point. He's not trying to tell you that Jesus can calm all the storms in your life. The purpose of that passage is that you say, wow, just like God can speak and nature responds, this person speaks and nature responds. Right? That's the purpose of the passage. That's why it's there. Um, And so, that's what we have to see. You have to always ask the question, what's the purpose of this passage? Okay? What's the telos? That's always what's going through your mind. So as we study Mark, we're going to divide it up into its parts. And we do that with the idea of discovering what the Holy Spirit through Mark intended us to understand. Okay, and so when you look at your notes, already look at it, there's a telos there, right? For every section that we study, there's gonna be a telos. So um, this is how you divide books up. Did, Did I say something about chapter divisions here? Right, I don't know if I've ever said, what's that? Did I about the man on the horse? Yeah, okay. The chapter divisions and the verses are not inspired. When these books were first written, they were just one long narrative, and later on, later on, what happened was um, that s- said we got we got we got to figure out how we can uh, keep track of this, and so they divided it into chapters and verses so it'd be easier to find passages. So you can't go with those, and so when you have in your when you have in your notes Mark chapter one verse one through chapter two verse twelve, which looks really strange, um, it's because this is this is uh, a passage with a particular telos, and then two verse thirteen there's a different one that that comes, and that's how you divide divide it up. Where does the telos change? Okay, and so in my view, at least, there's a break between two twelve and thirteen. From two thirteen on. There's another purpose involved, okay? And so um, the king appears. Mark chapter one, verse one, through chapter two, verse 12. Um, You divide by telos, and here the telos is, Jesus appears, bringing with him the kingdom or the reign of God, okay? That's what this first part is about. Jesus appears, bringing the kingdom or the rule of God, Now, I still have five, uh, four minutes. Let's see if I can get this done. Yes, I'll do my best, okay? The telos, Jesus appears bringing with him the kingdom or the reign of God. Now, the purpose of this section has to do with the appearance of the king bringing with him the reign of God. Now, when the scriptures speak of the kingdom of God, they don't speak of a geographical entity. It's talking about the rule of God. Wherever the rule of God is. The kingdom exists wherever the rule of God exists. Now God does rule over the whole earth. That is his sovereign providential rule. But when we're talking about the kingdom of God in the Gospels, primarily it speaks of the kingdom. It means the saving rule of God. The rule of God by which people are saved and brought into this relationship with God. So... Let me explain to you three ways of thinking about the kingdom of God, okay? Three ways, all right? Now, I know this, church. I know your theological stance. You're saying, well, the kingdom of God is over, over everything. God is sovereign over everything. God is king over everything. Everything goes according to what this king says and what he's plan and purpose and so forth, and that's right. So here's what we call that. We, I would call that God's universal providential rule. God's universal providential rule. And here you might think of it this way. God controls opposition to his rule, right? God controls opposition to his rule. The second way of thinking about it is God's saving rule. Okay? What's God's saving rule? God redeems some of the opposition and brings them under his rule. Okay? Or they become willing subjects of his rule. And then the last way of thinking of it is God's complete rule. So for example, in the book of Revelation, the seventh trumpet is sounded and here's what the text says. Um, uh, This is chapter 11 of Revelation. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Here is where The kingdom of God arrives and eliminates the opposition. Okay, does that make sense? There's three ways of thinking about the kingdom of God. His universal providential rule, right? Everything that's happening today is according to the rule of God. And then there's his saving rule. In the first, he controls his opposition. Then there's the saving rule. He redeems some of his opposition and brings them in willing subjection. And then there is the complete rule, all right? where the opposition is eliminated. It's absolutely eliminated, okay? So that's some ways of thinking about this. But in Mark, it's the saving rule of God. Okay, I made it. All right, let's... um, Now, okay, we got to quit now. So if you have any questions, write them down, okay? So we can talk about them next week. or if we have any questions while I'm talking, raise your hand so we can, whatever, we have to you know, deal with it, okay? All right, let's pray. Thanks, Father, for your word. Again, we anticipate your um, meeting with us today. You're good and you're gracious, and we thank you that in Christ um, we can have access to you, we can enjoy you as we come together. Thank you in his name, amen. And that he is indeed their God. So the temple stood for the fact that God had delivered them, a reminder of that. And that he was their God and that he dwelt with them. So the the temple stood (coughs) also as a reminder of deliverance, much like communion for us. (coughs) It stood to remind them of what God had done on their behalf. It was also the place where he would dwell with them. All right? Now look over at Deuteronomy chapter 12. Again, right before they enter the land. Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 7. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. In other words, he's saying, destroy all these places. I don't even want you worshiping me in those shrines. Not even the true God in those shrines. Those have to go. You shall worship the Lord your, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. God would place his name on a particular location, and this would be the meeting place between God and man. Nowhere else. Only in this one place. This was the meeting place. If you wanted to meet with God, you didn't do it in the hills. You came here, and this is where you would offer your sacrifices. And Solomon's attitude was the exact same way Only more developed, if you will, at the dedication of the temple that you see in 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. You follow along as I read in verses 27 through 30. Now, notice how he describes this temple. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes May be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now, notice, it was the place of his name, it was the sign. Of his presence. It was the place of mercy. It was the place of prayer. For God to hear from heaven. You came to this place. And later on he even says. And, and if they're ever in exile. They will face this place. And pray toward it. Right? So God could hear. It was the meeting place. Be- between God and man. It was his where his presence was. And his presence means grace. His presence means grace. So when Haggai said, these people say it's not yet time to build the house of the Lord, God said, you do not want me. That's what God was saying. It wasn't just about this temple. It's the place where you meet with God. You don't want me. That's your problem. You don't want me. The refusal to build the house was a rejection of the offer of grace, the grace of God's presence among his people. This place, of my, this is the place of my presence. But you would rather not have my presence among you. You have more important things to do. You want all the good things of life, right? The crops, the houses, all that. You want all the good things of life, but you don't want me. You don't want me to refuse to build the house of the Lord was at best saying that it did not matter to them whether the Lord was present or not. At worst, it's presuming on God's grace, saying, we want your grace, but we won't use the means of grace. We want the good things you can give us, but we don't want to use the means by which we can meet with you. So these people were not blatantly rebellious. They were spiritually careless. They had drifted into this this kind of... of um, thinking that, yeah, 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 it's just not time to build the Lord's house. They had drifted. They were spiritually careless. They weren't blatantly rebellious, just breaking all the commandments. They had drifted. They had drifted. Now, here's the deal. God intends the message of Haggai for you. The Bible is written for us today. This was not written so that we could understand the problems of God's people long ago and far away. That's not why it's here. It's not why it's here. First of all, this is the Word of God. And according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, it is intended to teach, to convict, to correct, and to train us in righteousness. And when Paul wrote that, he was talking about the Old Testament Scripture. And so he intends all of this. He intends the book of Haggai to... What? Teach you, convict you, correct you, and to train you in righteousness. It's all part of that. And then all of this points us toward our relationship with Jesus himself. We have to see it in that light. If you look at Luke chapter 24, you remember the story where Jesus is walking with these people on the way to Emmaus? You remember that? And one of the most important things that happens in that conversation he had with them was this. In Luke chapter 24, Verses 25 through 27. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is in this book. It talks to us about our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's think about that for a moment. After all that you've learned now about the book of Haggai and everything that's going on, here's what we need to remember. What is Jesus' name? Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. What is the meeting place between God and man now? It is Jesus. The temple was always pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice given once for all, and so we come to God through him, just as they had to go to God through the temple. Jesus is the temple, the meeting place between us and God, the access to God. That's Jesus. Jesus is the sign that God has delivered us. Through the cross, Jesus is the token that God is our God, and we are His people. So this book is indeed about Jesus and our relationship to Him. at least that's what Jesus says. The whole Testament was about Him. So the question we need to ask is simply this: How much like those people are we? How much like them? are we? You know, has life just moved on for us as well? Are we so concerned with our life, our homes, our jobs, our children, our careers, even our clothes, that we just don't have time for God, that we just kind of slip away? Do we desire comfort more than worship? It's not like we're blatantly rebellious, but it's so easy to be spiritually careless do we desire God and Christ more than anything else? Do we? We want joy, but do we want Christ, the source of that joy? We want change, but do we want Christ, the source of the power for change? Do we want to know Christ in every aspect of his being? Do we really want to do that? I'm always challenged by this verse, Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ. Christ and the power of his resurrection that sounds good and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead is that what we want? do we want to become like Jesus in every way do we desire the presence of God among us and in our midst So here's the question I ask. If the prophet Haggai would show up today, would he say anything different than he said then? That's the question we need to answer. And we have to say, what is more important to you? Do your comforts and your career mean more to you than a dynamic relationship with the Lord Jesus? Would you rather be conformed to the sufferings of Jesus than have that job that pays more? That's a tough one. Do you want the grace of God without pursuing the means of grace? His word, the fellowship of believers, the Lord's table, all those things. Do we want his grace, but we don't want to pursue the means of grace? What has God's messenger Haggai said to you this morning? What has Haggai said to you? In the ensuing weeks, we'll find out exactly what God wants from us. But here's the deal, okay? It's not that God is some... Cruel, distant deity who just demands things from us. Because what he demands from us is always what is good for us. Never forget that when God is glorified, you flourish. We want to glorify God. We want to see his grace manifested. God is always for us and never against us. And so as we proceed through this book, we're going to see how God says to us, do you want me? Do you want me? And then we can see how we ought to answer. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for the fact that it's incisive and can open us up in ways that we never dreamed that's living and active, separating that which is inseparable, in order that we might know our hearts better than we ever did before. We thank you for the word that lays out the path that trains us in righteousness. And so we pray that you would, in the ensuing weeks, help us to understand your message here, that we might glorify you and see your goodness in us. We thank you now in Jesus' name.